What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As a children's literature scholar, I've been very excited about the development of Disney's live-action version of Beauty and the Beast. And that has got me thinking about one of the main reasons I love fairy tales. They exist in a kind of expansive collective existence that is for all time. This means to me that tales change and develop over time. They become something new in the hands of a new teller, or they transform when they are developed into a new medium. As a lover of stories, I find joy in each new invention. So to share my enjoyment of reinvention, here are some of my favorite versions of Beauty and the Beast. Along a more traditional route is the illustrated version by Mariana and Mercer Mayer. The Mayers embrace a fully romantic version of the tale. The illustrations are lush and complex, capturing the emotional connection that Beauty makes with her beast. Fans of young adult fantasy may well be acquainted with Robin McKinley's 1978 retelling called Beauty. Still a classic today, McKinley's beauty is strong and makes her choices out of her own free will. The writing is rich and picturesque, making this one of the best-loved versions of the tale. Another young adult version that takes a contemporary look at the story is Alec Flynn's Beastly. Set in New York, the Beast lives in a brownstone and was cursed by a teenage witch. The Beast, who is spoiled rotten, must learn how to not be such a jerk, but it will take his own beauty to do it. If you're looking for another retelling that takes the story out of the normal context, then also check out Donna Jo Napoli's Beast. This elaborate but very harsh retelling of the story is set in Persia. It's also interesting to note that both of these versions are told from the perspective of the Beast, a point of view twist that adds richness to both versions. So if you and the readers in your life also like how fairy tales can change, why not take a moment to check out some of the amazing retellings suggested to you by Rachel's World. Did you realize you are fostering traditions every day? According to folklorists, we fashion traditions with our words, hands, actions, and beliefs. A classic example of where this happens might be around the holidays or even just our daily experiences. In just a moment, a professional folklorist, Jill Rudy, visits with us and Rachel Wadham on Worlds Awaiting about our remarkable capacity as humans to establish and preserve what folklorists call texts and what you and I normally call traditions. Professor Rudy of the BYU English Department researches the history of American folklore scholarship, fairy tales in the media, and family folklore. Here's Rachel and Jill. We're in studio with Jill today. Welcome, Jill. Thank you. One of the things that I think is so interesting that as a folklorist, you study all kinds of texts, and some of them are not necessarily what we would consider text, per se. I think a lot of people define text as words on a page. But when you look at folklore, there are all kinds of texts. So tell us a little bit about what a text would be defined as, as a folklorist. Well, my my mentor, Bert Wilson, talked about things people make with their words, their hands, and their actions. 
And then another folklorist added in beliefs. And so any of those kinds of expressions that have a traditional component where they repeat but change and they kind of belong to a group or something, I would send my students out to document. And so, for example, something people make with their words might be a proverb, like a penny saved is a penny earned, or don't count your chicks before they hatch, a story, um, a song, like the happy birthday song. But with the additions of the different ways that people add a cha-cha-cha or or something to that. But those seem kind of text like we, we might expect. So something people make with their hands would probably blow that out of the water because a, a text with something people make, traditional that people make with their hands, might be something like a friendship bracelet or the birthday cake or a saddle or a quilt or something they crochet. So it it would actually be a physical object. But that's still graspable. What Maybe what, what people make with their actions is really then extending what becomes a text because I might ask my students to to document a, a dinner, a, a, a holiday dinner or a whole holiday celebration. And that's something people do. It, it might involve objects. It might say, say in singing something. But it, um, it's, it's more of a whole collection of, of expressions that we would count as a text. And then a belief might be something like how to cure the hiccups or um, curing the common cold. And so that, that would be something that a folklorist would consider a text. Or good luck charms, what do you do to do well in your dance performance or your athletic performance? And so those very acts, they probably, those also probably involve some sort of action and maybe some sort of object. That would become the text that I would want my students to document. And I think that's interesting. I had an aunt who believed that if a bird came in the house, a death was imminent. So that kind of belief. And it's interesting as a folklorist, you would take that kind of belief or the experience or the, the thing that they've made and then actually read it in many ways to understand it and to bring more insight into us as human beings and the world and the societies and cultures we live in. So how do you do that? I mean, how do you as a folklorist read those kinds of texts? So I'm, I'm starting to do that as you, as you mentioned that example. And I'm, so I'm thinking one way I would ask my students to do that would, would be to think about how she learned that. And that would connect us to probably her, her family. And so that, that would give us some sense. But her family is also in a region. It, it may involve religious belief, but it may be more likely that that's something people in a certain part of a country believe, or it could be something a whole country. Or that's what's so exciting about studying folklore is that it, it is kind of global. And then you find that maybe it's not a bird in the house, but it's some other type of similar expression that can kind of foretell the same sort of thing. And so it's almost like making webs of the idea with the group, with the value, and 
that's kind of how we start reading it. And I think that reading it, that type of reading is really contextual because in this particular situation, she grew up in the South. Uh, nobody else in her family believes this. She's she's the only one. Um, there's a f- kind of folkloric story about a, a a cousin that this had happened to that I think was kind of attached to that belief. But again, that context and reading that context is significant. So then how does reading that context help us understand or get further insight into who she was or maybe who the culture is or who we are as human beings? Um, it it just adds more, I think. Plus, I we have to recognize it in the first place. I think that's that's one of the interesting maybe problems of folklore is it, it is so common. It is so everyday and it just happens as we go along. We, we don't often recognize how often these kinds of texts are part of our life. And so that's often what my students tell me that I'm seeing folklore everywhere now and they, they didn't – they didn't have that label for it, and they didn't maybe think, well, what's, what am I doing today? What am I saying that has been said, if, if variation that is traditional, or what, what celebration is coming up that I have learned to, to do from the people around me? So I think it's really great that you know, other people in her family didn't believe it, because there is kind of a sense, even among folklorists, to think if you're part of the group, everybody in the group thinks alike. And so it's kind of interesting to, to ask questions and kind of navigate, how am I like my group? But how, how, how did I maybe make up this thing sort of all by myself? And the, the reading it helps us kind of sort through some of those questions. And I think that's wonderful because, again, our definition of literacy on the show is very broad. And part of it is this sense of seeing. And I like that connection that you made with the fact that we need to see folklore in order to understand it. And I love how your scholarly focus on folklore just really helps us understand some of these basic interpersonal kinds of things and and expands our scope of literacy. And then taking that understanding that we gain and then applying it to helping maybe our children understand the world better. So how do you think these kind of folkloric representations and expressions and texts help engage children with the world? And and what can parents maybe do to help engage children with these kind of folklore expressions in order to help them engage better with the world? I tend to think that this is, people are wired to learn this way, that and actually they they can't navigate the world without having these kinds of traditions and expressions. And so they, children will just grasp them. Um, I, I remember I had a friend in graduate school whose little boy gauged time by his birthday. You know, it, you know is it my birthday yet? And he would, he would ask that often because when you're little, a, a year is a long time. So know, know that they are, they are already – just from living in this world, they are they are picking up these traditions, and so help them, and and don't don't be frustrated if they kind of want the repetition. You know, they they want to hear the same bedtime story over and over again, or or even that they need they need the patterns of doing certain things at certain times of day. I think that that in itself is is very folkloric, and it's it's helping them navigate the world. 
um, there's kind of a fine line between because children also will play and they will make up their own traditions. And so sometimes thinking as an educator, you know, it can't can't we in, kind of invade their play to teach them how to read or how to count? And um, but then I think as more of a folklorist, I think, no, just just know that sometimes they are working out things on their own in those kinds of situations. And, you know, it's okay, I think, to recognize the kind of imagination and play and the way they're setting up their world or, or navigating things as they sort out who is the mother when they play house and who is the dog. Um, let, let that happen. But then also share stories with them and go along if they want something repeated over and over. Let know that they're learning about how the world works and they like that part. And so help that happen for them. And I think that's so important to critically understand how much folklore or these kinds of traditional experiences play in the lives of children and in connecting them to who they are and then who they're going to, to grow up to become. That is a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Jill. You're welcome. Thank you very much for asking. That was Rachel Wadham with folklorist Jill Rudy talking about traditions. You're listening to Worlds Awaiting. Next, Rachel visits with poet Janet Wong, co-compiler of the Poetry Friday Anthology. She shares how she discovered the true joys of poetry somewhat later in her career when she heard the work of a poet read in a children's literature class. Janet Wong, who started as a lawyer, is now an award-winning children's book author. She's related the story of her dramatic career change on The Oprah Winfrey Show, CNN's Paula Zahn Show, and Radical Sabbatical. Janet Wong is the author of 30 books for children and teens on a wide variety of subjects. Here's Rachel and Janet. We're in studio today visiting with Janet, who is a poet and an anthologist and has just wonderful experience to share with us in this area. So, Janet, let's start out with the question, how did you develop a love of poetry? What brought you and poetry together? That is a great question. I don't know if you know, but uh, when I was a kid, I did not like poetry. Actually, what I tell kids is when I was in fourth grade, I hated poetry, but I don't think, in all fairness to poetry, that I knew enough poetry to hate it. What I really hated was poetry homework. I hated having to memorize poems. I also hated picking poems apart, trying to find their true meaning. So I never thought I would become a poet. But then, right after I I quit my job as a lawyer, I was in a one-day seminar, how to write a children's book and sell it, and I wasn't really interested in hearing the poet speak. But when Myra Cohn Livingston got up as the third or fourth speaker of the day and started reading, all of a sudden I knew I could learn something from her. She was just so incredible, and the way she was reading her poems, One of her poems made me blink back tears, and I thought, I need to study with this woman. But I didn't want to learn poetry. So it wasn't until, oh, 26 rejection letters after I started writing that I decided I needed to learn how to to write a picture book. And I signed up for Myra's beginning poetry class to write a picture book and then accidentally fell in love with poetry while I was studying with her. That's a wonderful way to fall into it. 
Let's follow up on the beginning, though, a little bit. You said that you didn't like poetry homework. So what do you think teachers and other people um, that are working with children can learn from that initial experience you had with a dislike for poetry? I think one of the things that turned me off from poetry was memorizing a poem, or so I thought, then standing in front of the class and mid-sentence forgetting the whole poem. And, and so I think that, that kids who can memorize poems, who like to memorize poems, should be encouraged to do that. But I don't think it should be a mandatory exercise. Um, and then the picking poems apart. You know, um, there's a certain amount of that that we need to do in order to teach poetry, but the love of poems has to come first. Kids have to hear poems and not feel like they're put on the spot to, uh, to, to, analyze a, to analyze a poem. They need to just be able to enjoy them. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the interesting things for poems for me is it really does help us slow down. And that white space around the edges of the page really help us slow down and take, take a moment to really relish the words and all of the things that are on the page in a way that, you know, dense, packed texts don't do. Right, right. And, and for young readers, for readers who are just starting out, um, or for dual language learners, having all that uh, non-intimidating, all that very friendly white space, as you pointed out, is so important. It comforts them. It gives them the confidence that they can that they can read this. And when you look at the easy readers, books like the Frog and Toad books or Nate the Great books, what they have in common is that that white space, the lines, the short lines, the loads of white space, and uh, each page says, "Don't be afraid of me. You can read me." And so that's one reason why I think a poetry book is a great idea. For, um, for, for beginning readers or reluctant readers. Actually, you know, you, you look at some of the poems that are very, very short, and they still speak to adults because of their emotional content. So, uh, so, so really, um, I, I guess I, I'm just going to sound like a poetry evangelist, but I think that poetry is the perfect genre. I couldn't agree more. I'll be a poetry evangelist, too. But unfortunately, <laughs> there, there are lots of people out there that are intimidated by poetry, particularly adults and adults sharing it with children. So can you speak a little bit about maybe some tips that you think that might help bridge that gap for adults who feel a little intimidated by poetry? Well, I think it's just to, to, to dive in, to get, um, to get some books that, um, that are friendly um, and, and what that means is going to the library, to the 811 section, and just browsing and looking for something, flipping through. You know, the neat thing about a poetry book is you don't have to read it uh, in order from page one to the very last page. You can, you can skip pages. You can read it backwards, right? If a book has only one poem that speaks to you, it's still been a valuable book. And I think that that's the key, is that when an adult uh, picks up a book of poetry, don't feel compelled to read the whole thing. Just, you know, skip through, find a poem that speaks to you. It might take three or four or five poems until you find one that makes you say, yes, I love this poem. And then uh, share that poem with kids. Don't worry about the other ones. You don't have to read it sequentially. Um, and, then, and then look for the poems that really speak to universal topics. 
uh, right before our interview, I was I wanted to bring our dog in, and uh, she's 14 years old, and she's kind of on her last legs, and. So sometimes she doesn't really even notice me, and then when she turns her head, she'll be super startled. And that happened just, you know, just half an hour ago. That happened, and I scared her, and I, and I thought to myself, oh, you know, how long does she have? And then a poem popped into my mind. That's the thing about a poem. Even if you don't memorize it, it will be with you and pop up at those moments when you need it. So a poem popped into my mind called, He Was So Little by David Harrison, which is in our middle school anthology, the Poetry Friday anthology for middle school. And it goes like this. Couldn't reach a chair, just stood there begging, eyes bright, fanny wagging until I reached down. His puddles were so little, sometimes I'd miss them, but he always gave himself away, head hanging, ears drooping, ashamed. Loud noises scared him, made him whimper, come running to me, too scared to know what to do. I'd pick him up, hold him against my chest till the shivering stopped. We grew up together, except I got bigger. He just got older. Yesterday, we took him to the vet, said goodbye, left him there. He was so little. The hole in my heart is so Big. Wow. Does that poem hit you? It's bringing tears to my eyes. You're making yeah. me cry, and Janet. So you see, that is the power of a poem. So I, I didn't remember the words to that poem half an hour ago when I brought my dog in. But as I was bringing her in and noticing how I had startled her just by, just by waving my hand three inches in front of her face, she jumped. All of a sudden, all the emotion that I experienced when I first read that poem came to me at that moment. And in a way, it made me stronger and it made me more compassionate because then, even though I was rushing in, at the same time, I was shepherding her gently because of that poem. So uh, poems stick with us. They, they, They change us. They certainly do. They Poetry just brings such an amazing richness to our lives. So as we wind up our conversation here today, why don't you sum up for us maybe one or two points that you think are really important for adults and people who love children to remember about poetry and the impact poetry can have on our lives? Well, number one, poems are short. Most children's poems take less than one minute to read. Many of them take less than 30 seconds to read. So do you have 30 seconds that you can spend in your day to become a better person and help the children that you're with become better people? I hope so. I hope so. I think that's actually the biggest selling point of poetry. It's like poetry is like the vitamin pill of the language arts world, right? You, you just you take that little poem and, and you're good for the whole day. Um, and then uh, the only other thing I'd want to say about poetry is in terms of encouraging kids to write, nothing is easier than a poem. Oh, most, most of my poet friends hate it when I say that, but I think it's true because anything goes in poetry. If you want to be, well, if you want to write with no capital letters at all, no, no periods and commas, 
not following any of the conventions, you might become as famous as E.E. E. Cummings. If you want to write with made up, totally made up words, you might become as famous as, as Lewis Carroll, who wrote Jabberwocky, "'Twas Brillig and the Slithy Toves, the Gyre and Gimble and the Wave." What does that mean? Well, anything goes in poetry. And so I tell kids, five minutes a day. Five minutes a day, maybe five minutes before dinner, five minutes before your favorite TV show, five minutes before bed when you're too wired to go to sleep. Take out a piece of paper and just empty your mind. Don't worry about what you're putting down there or how you're putting it down. Just empty your mind. Maybe it will take the form of a poem. Anything goes. Call it a poem, and it's a poem. Write it, and, and that's a great way, great way to, to, to make yourself a better writer and a better person. That's a perfect way to wrap up our conversation today. Thank you for, for your great work. You know, just for you, I want to share one last thing. Oh, do. You love, you love dogs so much. Yes. There is a poem by Janine Atkins. It's in the Poetry Friday Anthology, and it, it's called Good Dog, Bad Dog. And oh. I think that any dog owner who really loves dogs will identify with this poem by Janine Atkins. Good dog never wakes us up. Yep, bad dog jumps on the bed. Good dog shakes for a biscuit. Bad dog snitches jam and bread. Good dog chews dog toys. Bad dog chews the chair. Good dog comes when called. Bad dog doesn't care. Good dog snuggles by my feet. Bad dog steals my heart. No, that's our good dog. Some days we can't tell them apart. That is perfect. I love it. It just goes to show how beautiful poetry can convey just the basic wonders of life. Thank you for sharing that with me on a personal level. I appreciate that. (laughs) That that is wonderful. Poet Janet Wong with Rachel, talking about how her love for poetry bloomed later on in life and led to a whole new career as a writer and poet. We finish up the show today with a story about a boy who was never able to get through books, but eventually became an avid reader in spite of physical and mental challenges. My nephew Barrett, he's now 13, lives in Boise. He's a wonderful boy, uh, very sensitive to the arts and music and beauty. and, and uh, But he does have some struggles in his life. Um, his mother was carrying him, and then they found out after he was born that he'd had a stroke in the womb, and um, and he was born premature as well. I, I think um, that affected his little brain and his ability to concentrate and to focus. Um, um, he has some learning problems, kind of an ADHD type of thing where say he's in a classroom and he can't focus on the teacher he just hears everything else that's going on in the room so it's hard for him to focus and and it's been especially hard for him to sit down and read a book had a great experience and became a reader so (laughs) yeah can you share his inspirational reading story oh certainly yeah um his mother i think found him a book this book it's called the clockwork three and it's by matthew j kirby and he's a a writer. He's actually based in, in Utah. And um, and Barrett just got caught up in this book, and he finished it. And he's never done that before, especially a, a bigger book like Matt had written. And so um, Barrett was so taken by it. And 
Barrett wanted to thank Matt, and so I sat down with Barrett and I said, "I'll be the, I'll type it, and you tell me what you want to want me to say." And so, just a short, cute little email. Can you? Can I tell you, you are my hero, Mr. Kirby? Why? Because you are the best author in the history of the planet. Felt this way on the first page of your book, The Clockwork Three. It's hard to put into words how much I like your book. It introduced me into reading. Now I like to read and finish books. Since reading Clockwork, I have a favorite genre: realistic fiction. May I encourage you to write part two? Where and when is your next book signing? I would really like to meet you. And then Matt did write him back. I'm so glad you enjoyed reading reading the Clockwork Three, but more importantly, I'm so glad you have discovered the joys of reading. And then what's so cute? They had the Comic Con in Salt Lake City, and Barrett and his family had got tickets to it, and they all went. And guess who had a a booth at the Comic Con? It was Matt Kirby. So Barrett had his dream that he got to meet him, his his favorite book author. So. That was the story of Barrett, who, after a bit of a rough start, ended up as an avid reader. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.